Freddy Krueger. Freddy Krueger was scary as fuck. And I didn't see that movie until I was too old to admit to being scared by it. (laughs) I was like 15. And I had to be like, oh, yeah, that's hilarious. And then I'd go home and cry. (laughs) (laughs) I was like 11 the first time I saw it, which is right when it came out. Oh, Jesus, Lord. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Are you ready for this? Yeah. This is, this is different. Ready as I'll ever be. <laughs> Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome. I'm the Duchess. I'm the Duke. We're here today to talk about Ernest Klein's fantastic novel, Ready Player One. It was a really good book. You were pleasantly surprised, weren't you? I was pleasantly surprised. You were like, sci-fi, eh, I don't know. I can get down with some elves and shit, but... You paint it like I'm anti-sci-fi, and that is (laughs) not true. I I am definitely one of these people where it's like, I have my thing, and I like my thing, and don't fuck with my thing. You know, like... Like, I find something I like, and I don't like to fuck around with it. You know, when it comes to, like, media, right? But... But I'm not that locked in. <laughs> like I do so, like sci-fi. <laughs> was Ready Player One your thing? Yeah, I enjoyed it. It's you know I what I think made it so fun, and we'll talk about this more kind of at the end. But it's so different from what we've been reading, or at least what I've been reading, and so different from so many other books that I've read. Also different from a lot of the movies and TV shows that you see recently. For the most part, it's really kind of a fresh departure from where genre literature genre television is going i would definitely agree with that and i would add that i was pleasantly surprised at how well this book held up during a reread yeah because i've read it now twice i read it once some time ago i read it once again when you read it a few months ago and Mm -hmm. then again to prepare for this podcast i speed read I was pleasantly surprised at how how engrossed I got even the third time through the novel. So if you've read this and, and haven't, you know, done a reread yet, I would encourage you this one holds up pretty well. Yeah, I'm very curious to see if if you picked up on additional things on the reread that you didn't pick up maybe the first couple times through. Because I read, like you said, I read this a few months ago. And then for the podcast, I went through and kind of speed read and took notes and you know, I did not really sit down and reread the entire thing like you did. You know, I really appreciated the narrative structure a lot more. It, the plot was very fast and it kind of sucks you in. It but I it really appreciated some of the crafting in the narrative more this time around. Mm-hmm. You know, um, certain things being introduced in order to set up other things in the future. Yeah. And uh yeah, there was there was a lot of that stuff that I picked up on this time around that didn't didn't catch my eye the first time. Gotcha. Okay. 
So um, a little bit of housekeeping. So we are the Duke and Duchess podcast, and you can find us at theDukeAndDuchessPodcast.com. If you'd like to interact with us, the best ways are on our Facebook group page at the Duke and Duchess podcast group. You have to search for that on Facebook or on Twitter. On Twitter, we are at the D&D podcast. That's D as in David, N as in Nancy, D as in David podcast. You can also find us on Facebook at our regular page at the Duke and Duchess. So the other thing I want to talk about is this is definitely a departure from what we normally do. This is the first time we've covered a novel in one sitting. So I think we're both kind of scrambling sitting here for trying to figure out what's the best way to do it. One thing that we're we're not going to do is we're not going to go through and kind of give you the blow by blow chronological order of everything that happened. We assume if you're listening to this podcast that you've read the book. So we'll break it down more by like characters, world building, themes and kind of talk about those things you know, as we kind of come across them and some of our, our thoughts and different, uh, some other things that we've kind of thought that I thought of that I think are pretty cool. So that is that. We will give a quick plot summary, however. Lay it on us, baby. All right. Wade Watts' real life in the real world is shit. But he's a gunter in the virtual reality world called the Oasis. He is dedicated to a quest to solve a massive riddle hidden by the Oasis creator James Halliday. Whoever solves the riddle first gets control of the Oasis, which has become the center of power in a descending, chaotic, real world. Wade and several friends bond together in the virtual world to take down an evil corporate entity called the IOI. They want the Oasis for themselves. In the struggle to overcome the evil IOI, Wade and the Gunters become friends in real life and learn that even the most awesome virtual world can't replace a happy life in the real one. Wow. That was voicey. (laughs) I don't know. I just, you know, I just went with it. (laughs) So I have one question to start this off. All right, go ahead. Did you ever play Zork? I don't think I did. I I I have played Zork and I didn't remember it until I read this book this last time and all of a sudden I was like that was the one with the shillelagh. I think I, I remember, remember playing this old text-based adventure game. Do you ever play one of those oh, old text-based I, adventure games? No, I never did and I was I was so jealous of the kids that did because I really wanted to play those games and I never got to. I didn't mean to rub that in your face. I'm sorry. That's okay. (laughs) (laughs) It was really fun. I so wanted to play those text-based games and I just never got to. Now, while everybody else was playing text-based games, I was, because I never had a computer, but dice were cheap. I played Dungeons Dragons, which was, was a better than a you know, than a choose-your-own-adventure in a computer monitor anyway. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I sat alone and played dice <laughs> games. I mean. Maybe I shouldn't be so jealous. <laughs> no, I never played Zork. All right, carry on, carry on. All right, so let's talk about some of the characters. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I assume you want to start with Wade. Well, yeah, so Wade is our hero. Uh, Wade, who in the real world is Wade and in the virtual world is Parzival. Right. So what did you think of Wade? Is he all right? 
I mean, there's a lot to say about Wade. There I, is, yeah. I think he's got a really nice arc. I like to I like how he grows throughout the novel. Yeah. You know, he starts off as this lonely, awkward, in every sense of the way, recluse of a kid who mm-hmm. only comes alive online. Yeah. And then he grows to begin to branch out into these friendships Mm -hmm. um, to begin to exhibit leadership and in the end to be willing to sacrifice himself. I mean, that's kind of it in a nutshell. Yeah, absolutely. No, I I thought, I thought Wade was a very good character and I, I liked the sort of framing right from the beginning. His name in the Oasis is Parzival, which is kind of a bastardization of Percival which, as you reminded me, because I couldn't remember off the top of my head, is the knight from the Knights of the Round Table who finds the Holy Grail. Right, and I also like, it's mentioned early in the novel that Wade's father uh, wanted to name him, gave him his name Wade Watts because of the the trope of superheroes having the names. Double, yeah, the Names with alliteration. Yeah, so, the alliteration name. There you go. Thank you. That's pretty. It's pretty on the nose. Like Wade's going to be a superhero. We get that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I kind of like that. I like to watch the way Wade's motivations kind of grow and change throughout the novel. You know, he starts off pretty clearly motivated by he gets into this contest to get out of this sort of nihilistic state that he's in mm, um, yeah. where he's he, he basically says in the novel you know I got really depressed because I realized that you know the real world was terrible and my life was terrible and there's no such thing as God and everything is awful and and it wasn't until he found this quest that that kind of gave him meaning for his life yeah absolutely. you know and then through growing meeting challenges developing relationships he changes and he is willing to sacrifice being the one to find the egg at the end. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In order to help his friends succeed. And then he is willing, when he does get the egg, he is willing to share the reward with his team. Yeah. Th- I think the interesting thing about him is that he does go through all these changes and the, the big heroic things that he does are really within the real world. You know, so for a, for a kid who, as you said, is nihilistic, he's not only is he steeped within this virtual world, but he's steeped within this very narrow corner of it where this creator is just wholly immersed in this 80s subcult, all these 80s culture things. So he is like, you know, the very definition of nerd where he is just uber knowledgeable about this incredibly narrow section of, of information and that is his whole entire focus. But the things he does that really make him a hero are the things he does outside of that world. You know, it's his, you know, sacrificing things to move to Columbus. It's his sacrificing himself to put himself in harm's way in the IOI headquarters to give them a chance to defeat the Sixers and defeat the evil bad guys. It's his decisions, like you said at the end, to forego winning the game just so that the the bad guys don't win. He he's not he's not necessarily into it just for personal glory. So yeah, I liked him. I also like the fact that so 
with every hero character, they've got to have something that makes them special. Like what makes this character the hero? What makes him worthy of winning at the end? Mm. And with Wade, it's his dedication and his work ethic and his overall obsession with the things that Halliday loved. So he's better than other Gunters because because of his passion and his dedication, not because of some sort of special gift or talent he was born with, but because he just yeah. puts in the time and yeah. the effort. I hadn't really thought about it, but when you say it like that, even though a lot of what he's spending his time doing is watching movies or playing games, there's really never a time that you see him where he's not, quote, studying, unquote. He is always steeping himself in this stuff. You never see him just sitting around, you know, eating a bowl of chips and watching a football game. Like, that's not this character. Of course, that would also be boring to read. But, you know, you're right. It is the work that he puts in. And I think we have to kind of go into talking about James Halliday a little bit. Okay. Because this is the character that even though he dies before the novel begins, it kind of frames all the entire narrative. And yeah, so many of the other characters are described in comparison to him. Yeah, and and again, as you said, even though the guy dies, you know, 40 years before the story begins, we learn a huge amount about him, and it's very much about his life and his decisions and his regrets and things of that nature, just as, as, just as much as it's about Wade and his decisions and his regrets and, and all of that. So it's sort of like these two characters kind of in unison. So what we see in Halliday is sort of a one of Wade's possible futures. And yeah. Halliday is a, so he, so he's this genius programmer who basically built a revolutionary worldwide simulation. Yeah, and okay. he's, he's a fairly obvious Bill Gates slash Steve Jobs sort of type character. Exactly. He's a, I think the book even says, they yeah. think he was high-functioning Asperger's, genius, but couldn't handle interpersonal relations. And so he escaped into the Oasis and didn't even try to live in the real world. Yeah. And at the end of his life, he comes to realize that that was a mistake and that he wishes he could do something differently. And so he crafts this quest as a way of, first of all, making sure his memory continues and that people will grow to love the things that he loved, which works. Mm -hmm. And to also help craft his successor. So yeah. he intends for whoever wins the Easter egg to be able to take control of the Oasis, take care of it, but also to not make the same mistakes that he did. And yep. so we see this in the way that he uh, made sure that the third gate had to be opened by three people mm -hmm. who were all equally dedicated. And so I think that's really interesting and how, you know, Wade grows up without a father, but you kind of see Halliday as the the father and mentor figure to him throughout his whole life. One of the components that's a very common thing that's talked about about this novel is the whole 80s nostalgia thing. This whole drive for 80s nostalgia. And we can break that down in more detail later. But the point I want to raise here is that it's not done just as something cool to do. It, it very it very clearly relates to Halliday and how Halliday is trying to kind of put up this example of what life and society used to be like before it turned into this big pile of shit that the world has kind of become. 
And so that becomes sort of a measuring stick that you see kind of what the world has become in, in 2044, 2045, when the story takes place versus what it was 60 years prior and just how much it's declined. So you're constantly have this comparison of here's kind of where we were and here's kind of where we are now that's forced on you throughout the entire book. So what was your favorite 80s reference in the book? What was the one that made you like, oh my gosh, I completely forgot about that, but... Um, I don't know which which one that I necessarily completely forgot about. There are a couple that, that came up that were kind of my favorites. Like one is the Wade's passcode. Which is? I think he's got a couple passcodes through the books. Is it you've been recruited by the Star League? Yeah, exactly. You've been recruited by the Star League to defend the frontier against Zur <laughs> and the Kodan Armada. I love that one too. You know, it's funny because I had to look it up, but you you already had it memorized. <laughs> I, have that one memorized. I may have seen the last Starfighter a few times. So when when Wade and Artemis are kind of on the outs, mm-hmm. he he um shows up and puts the boombox over his head. Oh, uh, yeah. And and plays um Oh, what the hell's the name of that song? In Your Eyes. In Your Eyes, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then uh, my other favorite reference is when Nolan has to give his like number. like So Nolan is this guy who is the bad guy, and he's part of this big corporate entity, and everyone's got a number. They're called Sixer, and then they have this number, right? So his is 655-4321, which is the uh, prisoner code that Alex gets in the movie A Clockwork Orange. Six double five three two one. One nice one. I did not catch that. So yeah, that that's a movie that I watched way too many times. Nice coming out of the eighties and into the nineties, and uh, yeah. So that you know, Alex, by the way, is the story hero of the story, but he's also a really bad dude. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I liked. um, I mean, the last Starfighter reference, obviously, the one that really knocked my socks off though was early in the book Wade and H are, are debating about different movies and uh, they start talking about the Ewoks Battle for Endor movie <laughs> did you ever see this uh, yeah I did yeah yeah I when it first came out I don't really remember anything for about whatever it. reason it was one of the the few kid movies that my grandmother had on VHS tape mm. and every time we went to her house we watched this movie and so I've seen it a lot but I had completely forgotten about it and uh you know when I read this book I was like oh my gosh yeah. it was like one of the first conversations that you and I ever had mm-hmm. one of us I can't remember which one said it first said say show enough yeah and the other one went what what <laughs> yeah. someone else has seen, You've seen that last movie? dragon oh yeah. my gosh that's how I felt when Ernest Klein put the battle for Endor in that, this book. That's great. Thankfully, I was already married, so. Nah, the, um, th- there's a lot of Dungeons and Dragons references yes. and Monty Python yep. references, and that was probably what I spent 80% of my youth doing. So, yeah. So I was very pleased with those. So what did you think about Artemis? Let's talk about Artemis. Well, I love that she's a manic Rubenesque dream girl. There you go. Is she manic? Oh, yes. Okay. In the in real life. Well, one of her quirks is that 
that she talks about that she spends a lot of time online because in real life she tends to talk really fast mm. and and I think she refers to herself as a liberty gibbet. That's right. And yeah. uh, when he first co- you know has a conversation with her, she starts being like blah 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 blah, and then she goes, oh, she said this is why I prefer text conversations because I tend to talk really fast and be manic. Mm. So I was like, well, she's a manic Ruben S dream girl. Well, let's talk about. So one of the things that we have talked about on this podcast many times are the quality of female characters in genre writing and how so often these characters, particularly female characters just get short shrift. They don't get spelled out or they get put into an archetype and they never really come out of the archetype. How do you feel like Artemis stacks up in that regard? Oh, I love Artemis. I mean, I think unfortunately what what I don't like about a lot of female characters is that they're poorly written. Yeah. You know, when you have a, a, a character who is quirk meant to be quirky and maybe difficult, but the main character still likes them because they're witty or smart or whatever, you have to also be able, able to actually write them as witty and smart. Yeah. And sometimes so it often just that doesn't, doesn't happen. Doesn't yeah. happen. So yeah, yeah. it's just like you have this bitchy female character that doesn't get held accountable for being bitchy because they're so great, but you don't quite get what's so great about them. You know, Artemis certainly has her hangups and she does Mm -hmm. things that you don't really understand until the end. So, so Artemis gets very touchy about getting close to Wade and, you know, ever wanting to anyone to know what she looks like. And you get this idea that she's like repulsive in real life or she she has some kind of deformity and at the end of the book you find out that she actually has a, a large birthmark on her face but that that's in no way disfiguring and wade just thinks she's beautiful anyway you yeah. know he's a, had a crush on her ever since he started reading her blog or whatever and um well and what she doesn't know is that halfway through the book he, he gets a picture of her well, she she finds that out pretty soon after he oh, sends okay. the picture to oh, her yeah, right away, right. and she's yeah, very right. angry. That's right. So yep. she's not a, a like a by any means like a perfect character, like a perfect character where mm-hmm. she's always pleasant or she doesn't have any hang up. She's very real and grounded. Yeah. Um. At the same time, she's charming and funny, and the little the conversations between her and Wade are very engaging and enjoyable. Yeah, absolutely. So you get why he likes her so much. You know, if he had been like, oh, I was so in love with her mind, but then there was nothing, she wasn't written in a way that she was actually smart or interesting, or at least didn't come across to me that way, I wouldn't have bought it. Yeah, and that's something we've talked about many, many times. The other thing I feel like we see quite often in genre is the concept of writing a, quote, strong female character, but there's... It, it doesn't really but she's just, not actually strong it doesn't come across right or they're strong because they act like men they don't really write good fem- they don't write female characters well it's like you know if the writer wants i want to write about this guy's feelings this guy being in love that's what he wants to write mm-hmm. about but the female character that he's in love with is just kind of incidental yeah because what he really wants to write about is the guy's feelings yep it comes across. Absolutely. It's like this woman is obviously just a placeholder. Mm-hmm. You Could know? replace it with anybody else. Exactly. And it wouldn't matter. So either she's a bitch or she's the person he's in love with. It's really about the main character's feelings. And there's just not that much thought put into who she is. Yeah. And 
it's unfortunately just something you see with female characters more than male characters. And you've seen it in older, I think it's changing as, especially as there are more female authors. Yeah. Um, it's definitely changing. But when you read so many books like that, you just tend to get like, Ugh, you yeah, know, absolutely. so, but no Artemis, I don't see that, you know, falling in her falling into that character um, category at all or H you know, for that matter. I yeah. mean, this book has some fantastic female characters. It, it really does. And the characters, I think, make the book. The cast is not very big. You know, there's really only a handful of characters that really have any importance. And they're also, at least the there's no, like, really interesting bad guy, you know? There's no Snape character. You know, there's no Jamie Lannister there's no buddy like that. It's it's a group of people who are trying to overcome, you know, a Darth Vader type scenario. And that's kind of what it is. But the good guy characters are all really good. So you have Wade. It's, it's really Wade, Artemis, and H. But those three characters are really phenomenal. I mean, I would say that um, Dido and Shoto. Yeah, agreed. Are agreed. important characters as well. Agreed. No, they're they're clearly important characters, but the ones you spend the most time with are those three, but they're really well written. So we hinted at H. I love H. This is a great character. It's a great character. And for me, this is why I pushed you to read the book when you did, because I started to see stuff coming out about the movie and people putting out the pictures of the cast. And it's like right there. And I'm like, man, so many people are going to get that great twist at the end, just ruined for them. So H is Parzival's best friend. They've known each other for a long time, but never met in real life. Yep. But he's a tall, handsome, chiseled, jawed, assertive, confident, short, chubby black chick. (laughs) Yeah. And that is sort of like the big kind of twist it's it's the one sort of like big reveal so of course his avatar you know h's avatar is a white male and parzival meets him thinks he's a white male i mean he 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 touches on the fact that oh i don't know you could be a 60 year old whatever but yeah you could tell he doesn't really think that he thinks that h is another like him boy his age yeah yeah mm-hmm. and they have a this great friendship this ribbing, this kind of joshing dynamic. They they fight, they make up, they argue, they they use video games and stuff to settle their differences. And um, they go through this journey together where they're running for their lives at some point. They're engaging in this serious contest. And at the very end, right before the climax, they meet face to face and H is a chick, you know? Yeah. And... Um, it's just wonderful to see. And this really touches on one of the most important themes in the book for me. And I know I'm jumping around a lot. That's okay. From your outline over here. No, no, that's fine. The theme of relations in the internet relationships. Yeah. And can you have a real lasting intimate relationship with someone you've never met face to face? And I think that Ernest Klein is saying that here that you can. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, we see that in Dido and Shoto and their relationship and that they call themselves brothers when they've never met in real life. But they spend so much time online together that they um, they consider themselves brothers and they are. I think one of the one of the things that makes it interesting when you look at that question is the fact that, yeah, they are able to have a relationship online 
I think it's difficult to have a really concrete relationship online with people where the kind of consequences of real life are sheltered from you. You only see each other in these real prescribed situations. But these characters don't go through that because they go through sort of this existential crisis in this virtual world that has an impact on the real world. So they have only ever met online, and yet they're going through life and death sort of experiences with each other. So it's a different sort of bonding than I think you would typically see in an online relationship. And then as for the idea of kind of us jumping around, I mean, we had this idea that we were going to talk about characters. Set that aside in one little box. And we're going to talk about world building. Set that aside in one little box. And then we're going to talk about theme. But you can't really talk about these things without them crossing over into one another. And so, you know, we may jump around a little bit. All right, so I have a little bit of a left turn. And I have an 80s trivia question for you. Ooh, lie down me. I have a I have a bunch of these. We'll go through them periodically throughout the throughout the episode. So first one is which 80s icon who is referenced in the book was the target of an FBI investigation? Is it Billy Idol? Is it Gary Gygax? Is it Stanley Kubrick? Or is it the entire band Duran Duran? I don't know. I'm going to guess Gary Gygax, but if it was the entire band Duran Duran, I would love that. <laughs> that would be that would be a really good answer if that were the case, but it's not. Damn it. It's Gary Gygax. <laughs> I knew that. Yeah. yeah oh, you yeah. knew that one? That's what I said. Yeah, you, you did. Yeah, 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 no, you got it. Absolutely. You got I, I, it. I think I knew that. Yeah. Um, so Gary Gygax was apparently the... In, there was a file on Gary Gygax in the FBI. He was being watched under investigation. Somebody eventually released the file. It was so heavily redacted that you really couldn't tell what he was being investigated for. But it seems like it was just a classic, this guy might be counterculture, so we're going to watch him sort of thing. That actually happened in real life. Can you believe that? I don't know why you're so surprised at that. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe I'm naive. I think you might be a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean. Or maybe Gary Guy, excuse me, Mary, maybe Gary Gygax did something that we don't know about, but that part was redacted too. So anyway, one more question, and which is, which of the following 80s musicians is not referenced in Ready Player One? Is it Queen? Is it Rush? Is it Michael Jackson? Or is it Cindy Lauper? Um, Michael Jackson. Wow. You're good at this. I am. Two for two. <laughs> All right. So what we wanted to talk about next was world building. So one of the things that I thought was interesting, I like to look at authors now and put them on what I call the Robert Jordan, Patrick Rothfuss scale. So on the one hand of the scale, we have Robert Jordan, who will spend three entire books filled with exposition explaining all kinds of details of crap you don't really need to know about, just for the sake of world building. And then on the other hand scale, we have somebody like Patrick Rothfuss, who is going to give you drips and drabs of exactly what you need, little by little over time, building this very rich world slowly and never really giving you anything extraneous at all. So where do you think Ernest Klein fits on this scale? 
I mean, I guess I'd have to say he's somewhere in the middle. He's not stingy with his world building details, but he also doesn't put them out there needlessly. Um, I think it's it's also a little bit different because this world is very similar to our own. Mm. So there's not a whole lot of exposition needed to help us understand what's going on. I think that, you know, if you break it down into the real world that he's built here, and then you've got the world of the Oasis, Mm -hmm. which you can kind of look at it as two separate worlds. Um, The real world, there's not a lot of information that he gives us other than it's basically a worst case scenario from where we're at today. So, you know, there's been like climate change has caused natural disasters. There's been a depletion of resources. It sounds like there's almost no gasoline. Yeah. At all, because when Wade takes a bus to Cleveland, it's they talk about the bus having to stop and charge. So it's hmm. it's basically a worst case scenario with all of that stuff going on. There are endless wars fighting over what resources are left. You have people, you know, living in trailers that are stacked up on one one upon another with 14 people living in one trailer. Yeah. And that's a normal occurrence. You see... Um, a callousness regarding loss of life. Absolutely. And you, you know, when, when Wade's trailer is bombed, people are just pretty, it's pretty much brushed off. Yeah. And right in the very first pages of the novel, Wade mentions that the only things that you see on the news are like really huge disasters where lots of people have been killed. Yeah. And that's just a commonplace occurrence. Um, we see in the politics of the world, one thing I thought was very interesting was how, you know, nobody bothers with, um, voting for in the presidential elections anymore the real world the real life presidential elections because now that everyone can vote from home it's it's always reality stars yeah. <laughs> but you know will wheaton has been the president or the vice president of the uh, the oasis for a while and that's the the, the election that really matters yeah <laughs> uh also you know things like uh, apparently in the future comcast can arrest you and force yeah. you into indentured, indentured servitude. servitude. Yeah. So that's pretty freaking awful. For not paying awful. your cable bill. For not paying your cable bill. <sighs> uh, also, you can buy a gun from a vending machine in the future. So <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So it's a very bleak, stark world um, they have there. And that's kind of like the downside. But on the other side, there's this world of the oasis. And I really like how Ernest Klein lays things out as far as his world building and how does, how does the Oasis work? Because it's something that's very similar to the technology that we have today, but just kind of a step beyond. And that can almost be harder to write, I think, than imagining some, some future a thousand years from now where we all have jetpacks and spaceships, Yeah, you know, and he kind of looks at, okay, what, what do we do now online? And what does that look like if we had this sort of really immersive, virtual reality where everything happens there yeah you know so what does a chat room look like in a virtual world mm-hmm. and how does that work and what does schooling look like and what are the the positives and the negatives and he uses this to to bring up one of the the other really important themes of the book which is uh, net neutrality and censorship and how these things are important and affect us as people. Yeah, that's the stuff I think about the Oasis that was the most interesting to me. I mean, there was a lot of interesting things, don't get me wrong, but how these sort of institutional things like the educational system 
based on like what you said, the idea of net neutrality and everybody having, you know, equal access to information. Now that was sort of like the one good thing you could see that they, they managed to get right, you know? And, and that was the, the how, how the, those institutions inside of this virtual world impacted the rest of the greater world, you know, and how that, that could happen. Also the degree to which, fame and money within inside of the oasis could be leveraged in the outside world. Right. And I like that what he has to say about censorship, net neutrality, and he, he presents some positive and some negative aspects um, on both sides. I'm not explaining this very well. No, I think you are. Okay. So, so in Wade's world, the digital divide does not exist. Everyone yeah. has access to the Oasis. Mm-hmm. For a 25 cent startup fee, you can have access to any piece of art, literature, movie, television show ever created. Yeah. The, the Oasis makes money by charging avatars to move from place to place in the Oasis. So you can have access to any information that you want, but if you want to explore different planets you have to pay a teleportation fee or buy a spaceship or something like that, Mm -hmm. which is pretty freaking cool. If you ask me, (laughs) I'll digress, but yeah. And then you have planet, you can create a planet like Ludus, which is a school. Now Mm -hmm. I, what I thought was interesting about the way talking about his virtual high school, um, was the fact that the censorship software that forces students to behave a certain way or, or whatever, Mm -hmm created a better atmosphere for learning. And he talks about how the teachers at his school were so much happier because they weren't having to babysit or act as bouncers to all the students and that everyone took school more seriously. So on one hand you have that, on the other hand we have the IOI's plan, which is to impose that kind of software across the entire Oasis, yeah, um, which nobody wants. And obviously is those are on the bad guy side. So you've got this idea of like, okay, so it, there's a time and place for censorship, but it can't be just imposed unilaterally yeah. in order to make everyone happy. So I thought that was something interesting. Um, but then I think there's also a pretty, there's a pretty, I was going to say there's a pretty clear, but I it's I guess it's really not. It's it's more something that kind of unveils or rolls out across the course of the novel. There's a pretty steep negative in terms of people who live exclusively within a virtual world. You know, so we talk about not having that digital divide, having access to information, but what it does to people's interpersonal relationships is something that is drawn out as sort of a negative, you know, over the course of the novel. The one of the things that it ends with, you know, the way it ends, the way the story ends in the very last page is with Wade deciding he wasn't really all that interested in the, in the digital world after all, because the things that he was able to find in the real world were more important. They were better. They were more genuine. They were more true. Right. And we see this in the, the story that Shoto tells us when, when we finally get to hear Shoto and Dido's backstory. And these are the, the online brothers that team up with Wade um, that are, that are from Japan. And he talks about this, this phenomenon of, I'm going to, I hope I'm going to say this right. Hikiko Mori. Good job. (laughs) 
which are these um, youths in Japan who withdraw from the real world and just live in isolation on the yeah. internet. Shoto and Daido are two of these who obviously met online and just hold themselves up in their apartments and did everything online. Yeah. And um, you see the, the effects of that. And yet, Daido and Shoto consider themselves brothers and they have a relationship which is very deep and genuine. You know, and they would, I don't think, you know, we can't draw a conclusion and say, was it really a brotherly relationship? Would it be equivalent to that? I know some brothers who really don't like each other very much, but these two did really care deeply about each other. And the evidence for that, if you doubt it, is when Dido is killed, Shido is destroyed. He's crushed. When right, he's and in the, the end, I mean, you, you look at the relationship between Wade and Artemis. Can you say that that was a real relationship? And I think you absolutely can. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's interesting, just as a complete random aside, that Oregon seems to manage to stay kind of intact as a hippie tech haven. Well, to be fair, we don't see much of Oregon outside of Ogg's estate. So we assume <laughs> okay, that. Okay, fair. <laughs> fair point. Now, Og gets to live in Rivendell. Right? <laughs> That's a little ridiculous. <laughs> and Wade gets a Firefly-class spaceship, so, yeah. I'm so, a little jealous there. Yeah, so maybe, maybe the Oasis is okay, then, if you, get to, if you get to get your own personal Firefly. Time for more trivia? Yeah, sure. All right, I got a couple questions for you here. Cindy Lopper's hit, She-Bop, was about what uncouth topic? Promiscuity, masturbation, domestic violence, or rough sex? I mean, it's about masturbation, but now that you say that, I, I kind of wish that it was about domestic violence because, you know, that's she gets hilarious. To knock some dudes like around. little bunny foo foo. Yeah. <laughs> Bopping heads. I now I can't get that out of my head. <laughs> <laughs> so, for the record, you are three for three. Sweet. I thought I was going to be bad at this. No, you're great. You're like, at this. I'm going to make you do trivia. I'm like, damn it. <laughs> All right. So I was really sheltered in the eighties. I don't know a lot of stuff. <laughs> All right. So who shot Jr. Okay. That's, that's, I, that was too young for that. Yeah. For the record, I didn't know either. It was his sister-in-law whom he was having an Spoilers. affair. Spoilers. <laughs> I don't, I'm not worried about spoiling, <laughs> spoiling Dallas. I was too young for Dallas. All right. Next question. What do you want to do with your life? I think I want to move on in the podcast. Is oh, I'm sorry. The correct answer is I want to rock. All right. Okay. I want to rock. Okay. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about. We talked a little bit about it, but let's talk about the whole 80s nostalgia thing. I mean, I guess I should put it out there that I, I, I whenever I get to the rush section of this book, I'm like, <laughs> There's only like three questions about rush. Uh, I'm sorry. All right. So let's talk about the whole 80s nostalgia thing. So we kind of talked about some of the things that we enjoyed that were our favorites, but why do you think the 80s nostalgia is such a pervasive part of this book? 
Well, I guess it's pretty obvious that, you know, Ernest Klein obviously loves the decade, loves the things he's talked about. And I think in a kind of Halliday-esque way is imparting that, putting that love into this novel and engendering it out in the world, you know? That's the way that I see it. You know, the, you can really see just just the way his love of the video games and the the movies and everything that he talks about. This is not like, he's not like doing research on the 80s to to put into his novel. Like this is all stuff that he loves and remembers about the eighties yeah. and he put it in this book. I mean, it's, it's so evident. Yeah, absolutely. He clearly loves the material, but I think it, I mean, I think it's more than just him wanting to explore it for nostalgia's sake. I think it serves a device within the story, you know, in my opinion, and I've kind of stated this already, but it serves as a comparison to where they are currently but I think it also expresses sort of this, you know, naivete that people were living in that, you know, it's like the 80s was this period of time where it was really sort of the beginning of like the computer revolution. It was a, it was the beginning of where personal computers started to be- begin to become com- pervasive and also where nerd culture started to begin to emerge and grow and develop but it was also sort of like kind of a a peak time from an economic standpoint before we started to realize the impact of what things like the internet were going to do to society before climate change started to really become a significant issue we were just starting to kind of beginning to to look at that but it was also really kind of a dark time too because you had two superpowers with thousands and thousands of nuclear warheads that could destroy the world over at any time. So it was this weird sort of place where on one hand, people believed that anything was possible, but on the other hand, people believed that it could all end tomorrow. And it's just sort of a a unique time in history where you really could see kind of the world going off in, in multiple different paths but I can just, I see it as a deliberate device. I don't think that's in there just because he really enjoyed it. I think it's something that they're trying to kind of bring you back to a time that was a little bit simpler, a little bit more naive, but at the same point in time was sort of the beginning of where this all fell apart. It's sort of like the nadir, you know, the apex of where all the things that man had done to overcome and and master technology had kind of maximized. And then beyond that, it became the point of diminishing returns. No, I, I think that a lot of people see the 80s that way. And I think I'd agree with you that that, that all makes sense. I mean, I don't know if you look at the scope of human history, there's been a lot of points of time where you could probably say that. Um, oh yeah, I'm sure that's true. Yeah, we go up and down in our human lives, but of course, I, I, yeah, yeah, I, I think that is probably where part of that comes from. You know, the, the '80s were a time where we were at the last stages of our innocence in a lot of ways. Yeah, you know, it was before the AIDS epidemic really became yeah a pervasively known thing, and um, so, but you also were past the the sexual revolution of the '60s, so you yeah. kind of had this like hypersexuality going on that 
really by the time the 90s rolled around, there was a backlash to that. Yeah. Um, but it was definitely a time of more innocence and um, burgeoning potential. And yeah. I, yeah, I get I get why. I get why that would make a good contrast to the post-apocalyptic world that we have in this book. You know, we see that too in the villain in this book, which I love. I love Sorrento. Do you? Okay. I do. I love that um, his name sounds like a cheese. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that there's no attempt to inspire any kind of pathos or give him no. any kind of depth. He's nope. just like an 80s action movie villain. Exactly. He's just like a diehard bad guy, you know? Yeah. And, and cheesy. Great. And cheesy. Cheesy. It's great. I didn't even put that together, but his name <laughs> sounds like cheese and he's, yeah. So, he's cheesy. Um, yeah. It, it's, but it's great, though. It's very refreshing after all the kind of shades of gray bad guys that I've been reading a lot about, you know? Yeah. And that's actually kind of what I wanted to talk about next is that one of the things that we see in genre fiction as it's gone over the years is this tendency towards, you know, we kind of came out of the eighties into the nineties and I'm grossly oversimplifying things here, but the anti-hero started to become this big thing. You yes. Know? The idea of the Punisher and, you know, guys who were, they were good guys, but they, you know, they wouldn't really act like good guys. You know, they, you, you, they were rough and tumble and they didn't really want to be here. And, you know, this whole anti-hero thing. They don't floss. They don't floss, (laughs) you know. And so we went from that and then we get into what we're seeing a lot of today, which are these very gray characters, these very complex sort of motivations behind all these characters where you know you don't really have any good guys you don't really have any bad guys and one of the reasons why we like it is because it is more closely aligned to what we see in real life but i feel like this story is taking a step back into a more classic and simpler story that resonates with all of us And we'll talk about that in a little bit more detail next. But I think it's taking a step back into kind of a simpler, let's talk about good versus evil. Let's frame up that. And in some ways, that's more powerful to us. It's definitely what storytelling has been like for most of our human history. And I kind of relate it. You know, to me, it's not at all accidental or coincidental that you have this story rising in popularity right about the same time that you have Stranger Things rising in popularity. And not only are both of those stories very nostalgic for the 1980s, but they also harken back to a simpler type of storytelling, where things are much more just straightforward. Here's a good guy. Here's a bad guy. That's it. You know, we're not going to get into a huge amount of shades of gray. We're going to have a good time with a real basic story. And I like that that's sort of a you're seeing the pendulum swing a, a different direction. It's kind of a reaction to what you see nowadays. Yeah, and that's that's refreshing. I think that's that and the the well-plotted action, the snappy dialogue, that just really makes a great package altogether for yeah, this novel. absolutely. So I know we got something we want to talk about here with um, to get into more detail with that, to talk about the hero's journey, which I think we both want to spend some time kind of digging into that but before we do i have a question to ask you who's the boss scott bayo right 
Oh, I, I don't. I was too young for Who's the Boss. <laughs> oh, you didn't watch Who's the Boss. I wasn't allowed to watch TV very much. Yeah, you really were a sheltered child. I really was. Wow, it's uh, I was Tony Danza, to watch Mister Mister Rogers. <laughs> and, Tony uh, Danza is the yeah. boss. Okay. When my mom would go to the grocery store, my dad would put on MTV though. Your dad was the cool parent. He was the cool parent. <laughs> we weren't allowed to tell mom. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Okay. Who had the best hair of the 1980s? Oh, gosh. It had to be the girl from Teen Witch. Mm, sorry, I would have accepted Brooke Shields, what? Robin Givens, Madonna, or Sebastian Bach. Oh, Sebastian Bach did have some excellent okay. hair. All right. Who was the hottest chick of the 1980s? I don't know that I'm qualified to answer this question. I mean, I would have to say Debbie Gibson. I'm sorry, that's incorrect. I would have accepted Brooke Shields, Robin Givens, Madonna, or Sebastian Bach. (laughs) Very clever. Oh, let's talk about a simpler time. Let's talk about a hero's journey. Right. So um, I think you and I both noticed how closely this book follows the hero's journey. If you're, well, everyone's familiar with this this archetype. It's basically the archetypal story that's been told over and over and over again. But yeah. it was sort of formalized and described on paper by a guy named Joseph Campbell. And um, when I sat down and actually wrote out the 12 stages that Campbell described, it was mm-hmm. really interesting how closely this book followed. Can I give it a little bit of um, historical perspective before we get into that well you're the historical perspective guy (laughs) so there were a series of people studying folklore and myth and religion and things of that nature and you know Campbell wasn't the first one to kind of come up with this idea you know there was um, Adolf Bastian who came up with the idea of these common elements that show up in every myth and then Carl Jung who talked about the archetypes and then related them back to religion, and then Campbell, along with um, Eric Newman, kind of came up with the idea of the monomyth. But Campbell was the one who really spelled it out and popularized it, and and made it kind of what we know of it today. Point taken, absolutely. I, I, there's a lot of eye rolling during that. Particular all I know, I learned from the Google. I did not roll my eyes. I think that's all very interesting information. I actually did not know all of that. It came up. I think one of the things that people forget about with this is that it came about more as an attempt to understand religion and spirituality than it came up as an attempt to understand story. You know, and so they were trying to get down to. Why is it that when you look at a lot of the creation myths that they're the same, you know, and that's kind of where Jung started to come into this is the idea that like some people would say you would find similarities amongst the creation myths because they're all relating back to one story, one true creation story. And Carl Jung had the idea, you know, he was trying to break that apart and I think make it more secular and looking at the idea that, no, it's part of a collective conscience of ideas that we all have these particular archetypes. I don't know that he, was, he wasn't he was necessarily trying to uh, debunk the idea of a, of a creation story, but he was trying to break it into, you know, a little bit more of an elementary thing and why it keeps showing up in stories and why it keeps showing up in all the religions. 
And so it wasn't really the idea of stories that they were talking about. It was the idea of like everybody has this kind of hero story embedded and baked into them as a part of this collective conscience. And they thought it tied back to some sort of spiritual truth. Right. So it's interesting, you know, again, like we said, the current trend in storytelling is to sort of subvert all of these tropes. Yeah. So it's really refreshing and nice to see for me to just see an author just just pound each of these tropes on the head, just nail it right in just yeah. neatly. It's kind of it's kind of a beautiful thing how this just falls so neatly into that package. And like you said, with the good versus evil going on, it's what we love about Star Wars. Yeah. Um, it's it's what we love about all of these stories. They kind of follow this archetype. And sometimes yeah. it's just really satisfying. Sometimes we want our, our shades of gray and, and our Jamie Lannisters, but sometimes it's really nice just to read a story like this. Yeah, absolutely. And what's a really popular, you know, movie franchise right now? Getting ready to come out soon. Star Wars. It's, it's held the test of time, right? Stories like this do stand up to the test of time. So do you want to walk us through the stages so we can kind of see how this relates to Back to Ready Player One? So what are the, what are the 12 steps of the hero's journey? Oh, the hero's journey. Um, so, you know, what I see is um, the first five steps we see in level one of the book. So mm-hmm. we start off in the ordinary world where you've got a character and you're kind of, you kind of set the scene. Stage two is the call to adventure. And stage three is the refusal of the call. So as far as Ready Player One, we have the description of the stacks, his mm-hmm. description of the school, and then the the incident where the stacks are destroyed. And, yeah. and that's kind of the refusal of the call section mm-hmm. where the, the real world danger of accepting this quest is presented to Wade and he decides to do it anyway. Yep. It's interesting. This is this really blew my mind when I was taking notes. Stage four is the meeting of the mentor or alternatively, the hero reaches within himself and pulls out some kind of inner reserve of strength. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, this is in this story. He reaches within himself because when he decides to continue the quest, there's not really a mentor. I mean, you could argue that Halliday is sort of a abstract mentor. but And that's kind of what I thought, but I like right. what you... But, however, right after the stacks are destroyed is a scene, is the scene where he meets with H and Artemis and Shoto and Dido and warns them and everything, and they decide not to make an alliance because they're all lone wolves. Mm-hmm. And that is the scene where the stack of comic books in H's hideout falls over, and they're like, oh, that's weird. It must have been a glitch. But we find out later that um, Og, the great and powerful Og, yeah. was in the room <laughs> eavesdropping at the time, and I was like, that's the meeting of the mentor. Like, he yeah, yeah. was actually there present in that, and that's what I was like, this is perfect. And he is quite symbolically the man behind the curtain. It's funny. I never really thought of Og as Oz until you just said that. But well, that's... And he certainly is the mentor who then at the end kind of swoops in and gives them the, the peace that they need yeah, absolutely. in order to be, be able to defeat the Sixers. Um, and stage five is crossing the threshold. So we see, I see these first five stages as being level one because at the end of level one of the book is where Wade locks himself into the apartment and vows not to go out again until yeah. he... That's where reaches the level A. two begins. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So stage five of the hero's journey is where the, the hero then crosses to some other world or yeah. reality in order to begin its quest. On the, on, in the belly of a greyhound. 
Exactly. Or, or the belly of an of a apartment that he's locked into. Yeah. You yeah. know, stage six is tests, allies and enemies. Stage seven is the approach. So in these stages, the hero is navigating the new world, building alliances, testing friendships, making enemies, that kind of thing. And that's a lot of what happens, particularly in the first part of level two. It's a lot of, you know, the relationships were kind of created, but there's a lot of kind of testing of the boundaries. Artemis, you know, says, hey, I, I, I don't want to get into this romantic relationship with you. There's Dido and Shido. There's, you know, there's a lot of kind of pushing and shoving. And is the team going to stay together? Is it not going to stay together? So, yeah, it lines up. Well, yeah, that's pretty much all of, of level two are those those two those two sections in the hero's journey. Then he goes on to the ordeal, which is Wade's um, the, the hero goes through some sort of horrible test. And this is Wade's journey into the IOI headquarters yeah. where he arranges for himself to be arrested, not as himself, but as a another person. Yeah. And he breaks in to hack into their intranet and steal secrets. Mm-hmm. Stage nine is the reward where he gains whatever he wanted. Stage 10 is the road back where he comes back. And then stage 11 is the resurrection where he faces some other final trial where he dies and comes back to life. Yeah. Um, and then stage 12 is the return with the elixir where he comes back with his, you know, everything goes, gets fixed or whatever. Yeah. It just follows it so perfectly. You know, Wade goes through an ordeal where he goes into the IOI headquarters. He comes back with a flash drive of knowledge that is needed. Yep. He travels to Oregon and goes through his final resurrection and he's resurrected as himself because he kind of has he, to kill off his alternate persona. Yeah, and he well, and he kind of starts off as this in real life and in the Oasis as this poor kid with he doesn't have cool armor, he doesn't have cool gadgets, he doesn't have cool weapons, you know, and then after he dies and his avatar is killed in the Oasis, he's reborn, he's resurrected because of something he did earlier in the book, but he comes back with none of the cool stuff, none of the bells and whistles. It's just him. Exactly. So anyway, that's the hero's journey in a nutshell. And um, I just love seeing how exactly uh, this this story followed it. It's almost one of those things where I think a lot of authors nowadays sort of throw that out as a quaint, antiquated notion, and they don't look at that. They're trying to do something different and something unique. But what this story shows us is that, and the popularity of this story, I think in particular shows us is that sometimes the older stories are the better stories. And this is a this is a really good story, and I think it's in part because it follows that script that we've seen so many times. You know what? I don't know why, but for some reason, as we're going through this and we're comparing it to the hero's journey, I keep going back and comparing the movie The Goonies to the hero's journey. Well, you do love The Goonies. I do. It's a great movie. It's a great <laughs> movie. And yeah, I keep going through it, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's exactly like when they're in the cave in The Goonies. <laughs> You know, Chester Copperpot. All right. Time for a question. You ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. What was the name of Kirk Cameron's best friend on the show Growing Pains? I don't know. I was too Boner. young for that show. Nice. 
how they get away with that? Okay. The time of innocence, the 80s. Okay. Oh, you Boner could, could mean a lot of things. Could mean a lot of things. You never get away with that today. <laughs> All right. Who started the Parents Music Resource Center in 1885 to combat the insidious and parasitic scourge of profane music on our youth through the use of parental advisory stickers? Oh, Tipper Gore. Tipper Gore. That's right. And you know what? As a parent of youth now... I'd like to say that I actually appreciate those stickers. We have a little explicit tag. We have tag. little E tags, okay? <laughs> On our podcast. And I can be like, does it have an E? Don't listen to it. Uh, there you go. Unless it's Hamilton. So which... T- <laughs> <laughs> and then we, I'll- yeah, we make exceptions for art. <laughs> which two artists testified in front of the U.S. Senate in 85 in opposition to this act? Was it Frank Zappa and D. Snyder, Mark Knopfler and Getty Lee, Rick Springfield and Bono, or Debbie Harry and Chuck D. I, was it Frank Zappa? Yeah, I thought so. Yeah, it was Frank Zappa and D. Snyder. Yeah. All right. So let's talk a little bit more about some of the themes or the different social commentary. I kind of feel like I already spilled my load <laughs> as far as the themes. I was too excited. Did you so, have any that we haven't mentioned yet? Let me see here. While you're looking, can I just say that I also wish that they would actually invent the lockout health software? The what? The do, do you remember when Wade locks himself into the apartment? Yeah. And he, and he, he enacts this lockout health software. Oh, and yeah. And it like won't let him online until he, he exercises and exercise. it counts yes. his calories. And I'm like, damn it. Imaginary future. Why can't we have that now? Yeah, that's, you know, that scene, the whole apartment scene is pr- when he's in that apartment is for yeah, some yeah, reason yeah. my favorite part of the book. Oh, yeah. When it's describing all the just the the gadgets that he has. And yeah. And and also how he like you said, he kind of he digs back in and he not only does he become uber focused and concentrated on the quest, but he just be- kind of becomes like a better person. He starts to take care of himself and like he becomes much more introspective about what the hell he's actually doing. And like, you know, he starts to be, you know, he starts to talk about, you know, how had no experience with women and how he recognized that like, this is a poor substitute. <laughs> like, you know, he just becomes, it starts to become more of a, of an interesting person despite being trapped in that tiny apartment complex. And then it sort of ends with him, you know, with him finding out about Dido being killed and making the decision to, to throw himself headlong into a very, very dangerous situation, not for his avatar, but for his own personal self. That's true. And you could even argue that for, for Wade, that was the most perilous part of the book, even though we have this, this climactic epic battle at the end where he gets to, literally fight mecha godzilla i'm not that was pretty cool okay but his physical self was safe in augs in rivendell at that point yeah absolutely so this is the point where wade is actually in the most danger and it's the most horrifying part of the book it is scary. you know when yeah. they they describe the whole indentured servitude program it's like it's so frightening how easy it is to picture that becoming reality you know, and yeah. this program where, you know, if you're if you're in debt to your cable company, they can come arrest you and force you to be a slave, basically, for the rest of your life. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the only other sort of theme part that we hadn't really discussed was kind of getting into 
the idea of corporatism, mm -hmm. you know, and, and how that starts to outweigh politics, which is, I think, something that we see a lot today and people debating that, you know. It does, and a lot of times in in art and storytelling, when that is a theme, it bugs me because I feel like it tends to be kind of like heavy-handed and histrionic, yeah. but I think it's well done here. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, agreed. You know, and that's something that's very much a, you know, a concern we have today, you know, not something that people would have really thought about or, you know, back in the 1980s, but today that's a very, very... You know, that's a very big thing that we wrestle with. We have corporations in America that, you know, have more political weight and more, you know, pull more money than many, 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 many nations in the world. You know, so it, it's something that I think we have to wrestle with today. So that was kind of when I'm looking at my list of themes, that was the only one we had yet to discuss. I do want to talk a little bit about the riddles. Yeah. So there's there's a bunch of like little poetry things that Halliday kind of drops, but there are three particular riddles, each of them leading up to each of the three gates or the finding of the keys and then, and then opening the gates. Were you able to make, to get anything out of any of them? Well, I mean, I think they explain it to you. I mean, like, when you, so what I mean is like, for instance, when the limerick, which is the the riddle to get to the first key mm -hmm. comes up. When you read it, were you able to be like to figure anything out and and oh, glean no. it? Oh no, absolutely not. I was able to to pick up on the very first one, but that but only one part of it. So the first one, the the limerick goes. It said it reads. Excuse me. The copper key awaits explorers in a tomb filled with horrors, but you have much to learn if you hope to earn a place among the high scorers. So. As somebody who spent a lot of time playing at Dungeons and Dragons, when it says Tomb of Horrors I'm, or Tomb Filled with Horrors, I'm like, Tomb of Horrors? Like, I knew immediately what that was. And that led me down this road of wanting to try to figure out what was coming up in each of them. And that was the only place where I was able to get anything at all. The other ones I was, I found it impossible to do. I really did try to work through and try to guess where the keys were going to be as I'm going through it. I'm trying to like puzzle it out. Not a damn clue. Couldn't get anything beyond that. Right. There were a lot of very obscure yeah. um, references. Yeah. And so like the next one is the called the Daggeroth quote and says, what you seek lies be, excuse me, what you seek lies hidden in the trash on the deepest level of Daggeroth. I had no idea. And like, so for instance, one of the operative words in there that you're supposed to get is trash because of this computer called the T80, which they called the Trash 80. There's no way in a million years I was ever going to pick up on that. And then the last one is the Quatrain, which is the captain conceals the Jade Key in a dwelling long neglected, but you can only blow the whistle once the trophies are all collected. Not a damn clue. Not a damn clue. A couple more trivia questions here real quick. Name three 1980s movies that would never get made today. Um, I mean, I can't imagine The Goonies getting made today. You know, when we tried to watch The Goonies with our kids, we were like, <laughs> oh, The Goonies, you guys will love this. And then like, then we were like, oh, never mind. <laughs> 15 minutes Some really bad words in this movie 15 minutes and into I it, we're like, yeah, that's... watched it when i was nine yeah yeah 
what was what were our parents thinking i love the uh now i we we've all talked about the differences in our upbringing and how i was very sheltered in the 80s and 90s i mean if we're being honest <laughs> but um but i love the articles about like things our parents did in the 70s and 80s that you could never do today yeah, and right. how yeah, you yeah. know there were car seats and i just i like comparing that i think it's hilarious and you know it's sad because Sometimes I wish I could just let our kids walk to the playground at the end of our street. And I know that I never will because we can get into a whole rabbit hole there about. Yeah. Yeah. Potentially. Yeah. We you could. know, but. Uh, All right. So that was actually a trick question because if you named any three 1980s movies, none of them would be able to be remade today. They're all, they're all so politically incorrect that you couldn't make half of them today. I started coming up with a list of them and I was essentially like, this is basically every movie made in the 1980s. They just, they can't be remade. All right. What was the name of the parody collectible cards that featured children in comically gross or horrific situations? Oh, garbage pail kids. Your brother would have loved these. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He did love them. We had a million of them. Absolutely. Okay. Which 1980s movie was responsible for creating your favorite fashion item, the cutout collar worn over a single shoulder? Flashdance. See? There you go. How do you know that's my favorite? Come on. I've lived with you for an you awful long time. No, my favorite time. is the jean jacket. So, do you want to tell the story of the jean jacket? Go ahead, tell the story of the Only jean jacket. Only how you told me like five years after we've been married that you hate jean jackets on women, and I wear a jean jacket all the time. I didn't, it's not you quite did. what I said. And then you said, but I like it on you. That's not quite. <laughs> I don't recall saying it like that. <laughs> you hurt my jacket's feelings. <laughs> you know, it's funny because today I was looking in the closet for a coat to go outside and I came across a jean jacket <laughs> and I almost pulled it out and, w and went like, Hey, put this on. I want to see you in this. <laughs> I look cute in a jean jacket. You do look cute in a jean jacket. All right. So last thing I have that I want to talk about are, did you have any problems with the story? Were there any spots where you were like, eh, I don't know about that? Like, I mean, like the story is what it is. True. If you go in expecting a whole lot of depth and hidden layers, you're probably going to be disappointed. Well, that is one, I think, fair criticism of this of this novel is that, and and again, it, I don't think it was intended to be this, so that it's not really a criticism per se, but it it's not one where, like you said, there's not a lot of hidden depth. The themes are kind of out there. You know, there's there's one twist surrounding H, which, and we didn't talk about this, and we need to, which is why H decided to choose the avatar that she chose. Yeah, and I think that's an important part of her character. So, you know, H is a, a black female uh, in the early... 20,000s mm -hmm. and she chooses a male av white male avatar to open up social and uh, academic and and economic doors that otherwise will be closed to her yeah and I thought it was interesting that her mother was the one who pushed her to do that you know have we talked about that story on the uh, on the podcast yet where the the male and the female 
coworkers switched email signatures? No, we haven't. It's so interesting. I read this article and I wish I could cite it because that would be awesome, but I can't tell you where it's (laughs) from. But there was a a male supervisor who um, accidentally was logged into his female subordinate's email and accidentally sent an email with her under her account with her signature at the end. And he sent a few emails to a certain client and he was... Before he realized what Before he he realized what Mm -hmm. was going on and he had been surprised at how obstinate the client was with him. This is a supervisor who worked for like a uh, career services resume building company. And he was surprised because he thought this client would be easy to work with. They were really difficult. They questioned all of his suggestions. And then he realized he'd been signing his um, these emails with a with his female subordinate's signature. And so they kind of decided to switch email signatures for a week and see what happened. And he said it was the worst week of his career. Nobody took him seriously. All of his questions were were uh, all of his decisions were questioned and his female subordinate had the best week of her career. <laughs> she said she couldn't believe how easy it was to get people to take her suggestions, that sort of thing. So um, it's just very interesting. And then when you, it kind of applies to the story here where H's mother found that if she used a male, white male avatar, I think her life was a lot easier yeah. than if she, she went out there as herself. So, And that's kind of what, H found, you know, that's exactly what she found. Yeah. And so I think that's an important sort of thing that's kind of revealed. Well, and yeah, it's interesting how the internet has, when you look at how the internet has changed the world and you and I are in a generation where we grew up and spent a significant amount of our lives without the internet yes. and now have spent a significant amount of our lives with the internet. So yeah. we're kind of right straddling that line. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to see how the globalization Um, that's happened and how um, so many more people, you know, with the anonymity that's allowed and the ability of people to reach out and connect with people all over the world. Yeah. um, It's really begun to change the way we talk to each other, the way we connect with each other, you know, human nature in general. Absolutely. And you have to think about what we're doing right now is something, you know, you never could have done 20 years ago. You couldn't, or, 25 years ago, you couldn't have done something like this, you know, that we could have such a community that's drawn across such a wide geography over such an incredibly niche set of topics. You couldn't, you couldn't do that before. So the internet's given us that ability to really create communities that cross all these boundaries and really get into these, you know, the nitty gritty. It's also enabled folks who are marginalized to find community. So it's done a lot of positive things in that way, but it's also created the culture of, you know, the the anonymous flame war and the troll and the celebrity presidents and and things like that 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 uh, that we have to deal with as well. So, but we were saying before we kind of uh, started talking about H about things that you didn't necessarily like. Were there any parts of the story where sort of the verisimilitude got? pierced for you or where you were like, eh, I don't buy that or anything like that? Uh, for me, not really. Honestly, I think the, p- the pace of the story helps mm. to maybe kind of ice over a- any moments like that. For me, you d- you get so excited and drawn into what's going to happen. Yeah. Even for me on like a second and third reading, mm. you know, um, that I-, I was planning to more skim read the book yesterday, as you know, and uh, six hours later, I would like had actually read the whole book basically, yeah. <laughs> and it was two o'clock in the morning, and I was really sad. 
but I just got sucked into it again, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The only, there was only one part where I kind of frowned a little bit and went, eh, and it's the part where the stacks get destroyed and, you know, his family gets blown up and his neighbors get blown up. People that he's lived with for most of his life get blown up and he just kind of rolls on. Now, it's not that he didn't have a little bit of mourning, but, you know, it was, he, like, I didn't feel like it, that's the one part where I was like, okay, that took me out of the story a little bit. I didn't, that part didn't feel very genuine to me. It didn't stop me from enjoying the story, but I was like, okay, that's, that's a weak part. I can see why you would react that way. I think at the same time, it's possible that's a deliberate commentary on where human beings have become as a species at that point that, you know, Wade puts it right out there in the, in the beginning and he's a pretty nihilistic individual Yeah, that people don't even blink an eye at something like this happening. And, you know, while he certainly has some feelings about his neighbor being killed, who was the only person who was ever nice to him, yeah. you know, he certainly has some strong feelings about yeah, absolutely. All of those people being killed. Mm-hmm. It's also a world where you just so expect that sort of thing to happen that you that could be, you yeah. know, probably you, you become hardened to it. That could very well be. I feel like he reacted much more harshly to Dido being killed than. Well, he had more of a relationship with Dido than um, with the people that he lived with, I would argue. Yeah. You know, he talks about his relationship with his aunt was she was always high and stealing his things. And oh yeah, like clearly, yeah, like there was he, he was not happy where he was living. You know, it was he was sort of forced into that situation. His aunt was terrible. His aunt's boyfriend was abusive. Like so, you you get that he wasn't happy there. Um, the only person he really mourned was his neighbor. You know, who who was nice to him, but she was like nice to him in real life for like years, whereas Dido was somebody he met on the Internet. But I would argue that, well, A, I would argue that for him, Dido was just as real. Yeah. And that I don't really see him reacting more to Dido's death. Mm, that that could be. Yeah, I, I could. I could. Be I mean, I don't remember that. him mentioning it. I mean, other than being like, wow, it really sucks. And, you yeah. know, I don't I don't I don't didn't see a big difference between mm, that could be the two reactions. Yeah. That was just the only part of the story to me where I felt like it was it it kind of lost me a little bit. But again, didn't stop me from enjoying the story at all. So overall impressions, I thought it was a great book. I thought it was a really good book. Yeah, me too. And I'm excited to see how the movie adaptation is. That is, yeah, I'm excited about it. And I think what we may do is we will probably, well, I think we will definitely go see the movie and then come back and kind of talk about some comparisons. Whether we do it in a separate podcast or whether we attach it to another podcast, you know, we'll we'll have to see. So a couple of other questions for you, trivia questions, and then we will get out of here. What was the greatest toy of the 1980s? Castle Grey Skull. Yes! <laughs> there was only one acceptable answer for Not this. Not even a question. And it, it was, was Castle, Castle Grey Skull. Skull. <laughs> yes! We did not plan that. No, I'm glad. I didn't even know you had a Castle Grey Skull. I didn't. Oh, and, I'm sorry. And much like I rubbed it in again. <laughs> <laughs> but I had friends who had a class Castle Grey Skull, and oh, I'd be like, that thing I'd was 
bad donkey, man. <laughs> I'd be like, Brian, can I come over to your house and play with the Castle Grey School? He's like, yeah, me and my sister, we're going to watch whatever, dude. Can I- <laughs> <laughs> All right, last one. In the 1980s, what was Chad's preferred mode of transportation? Skateboard. <laughs> you aced this thing. Well, you, you got like 75. <laughs> You can find us on the Duke and Duchess podcast.com on Twitter at the DND podcast and on Facebook at the Duke and Duchess. We love your iTunes reviews, but if you really love us, tell a friend. Good night, everybody. Good night. <laughs>